Good morning, Faith Church. There was actually sunshine splashing on my car as I was heading out of Eugene this morning, and I, I was watching a rainbow come and go all through my drive up here to the beautiful metropolis called Dallas, Oregon. Look, uh, to, to be honest with you this morning, I feel a certain level of vulnerability that well, I always do as I'm, as I'm speaking because I'm not, our Father just did not wire me to lecture as some kind of a professor who takes ideas from the text and expands on them. He's always seems like preferred to work out of the grid of the things that he's shown me. And uh, the things that I'm going to share with you this morning represent that. And the difficulty is I can't say that these came things came to me because of my competence, because they didn't. Um, life is kind of mysterious. It's in our moments of great confusion and great pain where suddenly our prayers take on a different feel. And uh, there's no such thing as feigned desperation when you're in the thick of it. And I know that a lot of you in this church are in the thick of it. I offer these things to you this morning as an expression of what God has shown me in similar moments, but in no way am I expecting you or asking you to make these things true for you in any kind of an external way. If you resonate with what I'm talking about, receive that as a touch from the Spirit of Christ. And you know, the Word of God says, man, if you, if you move today, if you feel it today, then respond today. Today is the day of salvation. It's a, there's an urgency in real time. But all I ask is that you, you process this stuff with me. Let me share with you some of my own journey. I think about this stuff almost like a, a braided cord, like three cords and or three strands in a cord that when you pull these things together, they become my truest truth. And the first thing that God has showed me comes out of a, a simple verse in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. I know that I've shared with this with you before, but I just want to offer it as a reminder because this is... Uh, this is where my house rests. This is the rock upon which my, my house rests. And I, I, kind of, I kind of feel odd about expanding on this for any time this morning because it's just such a, a basic, fundamental thing. But I do recall Jesus says, a new command that I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And there were long seasons of my life where I scratched my head and say, like, what's new about that? That's not new to me at all. But there's something new in it. In Matthew 22, a man asked Jesus, what's the most important command? And you know, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But the way that he says it, it's not two commands. It's one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It's drawn out from that. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And as God began to show me my own deficiency in this, you see, I was the guy who journaled extensively, and, and if you looked in my journals, you might see entries like, God, I thank you, and I praise you for being so amazing, 
and I worship you because of your faithfulness to me. You have, you have given me salvation through Jesus Christ. You have comforted me in my moments of sorrow. You have given me direction when I've been lost. You have been faithful to me. I love you. But then I move over to 1 John chapter 4, written by John, who was the, the apostle of love. Man, that's his nickname. <laughs> Tender, pastoral John. And he writes at the end of his epistle in 1 John chapter 4, Bruce, if you say you love God, but you have contempt for another, you're a liar. Boom. And I suddenly I begin to go like, Wow. I can make a list of the people that I feel contempt for. Right? And it began to create a new life in me. And I began to understand that according to Jesus, John grasped it. The affirmative answer to the question, do I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, is yes. I love the people with whom he's given me the grace of relationship. That's the first strand. It's become, it's kind of like a porthole looking out of, a, of, a, of my sailboat out of which the rest of the world takes shape. It's out of the simplicity and the depth of that understanding that informs how I relate to my wife and how I relate to my grown children and grandchildren and how I relate to my neighbors, some of whom are really difficult people. How I relate to pastors and leaders that I serve and congregations that I serve. This is everything to me. Bruce, do you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? Yes, Father. I love the people with whom you've given me the grace of connection. That's the first strand. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a passage that Paul talks about in verses 3 through 5 in which he uses the language of strongholds. This summer, my wife and I hiked the Camino de Santiago from a little town in, in France, Port, France, up over the Pyrenees and about 500 miles out to the Cathedral of St. James in Santiago. And a lot, of the, a lot of the way that we walked was over old Roman roads. Those fellows knew how to build a road, stood the test of time. And we passed a lot of fortresses that were crumbling. A lot of them were kind of intact and subterranean form, but up above ground, they were just crumbling, but they were these stone fortresses. That's the language that Paul uses here. He says there are strongholds, there are stone fortresses. It's a place where an enemy, an army can hide safely until, well, until it's time for an attack. And in, in this passage in 2 Corinthians 10, strongholds are thought patterns that war against the knowledge of God. These thought patterns are ideas and ideals that are in conflict with what God says. They're beliefs and they're values that we have learned almost instinctively in walking in this world that we easily bring into our conversation about what it means to be people of God. 
And Paul says that the enemy actually inhabits these realms of thought. So they're like those fortresses that Heather and I walked past. The, the army hides safely in that fortress, getting a break, taking a rest, until it's time to attack. And this enemy, of which Paul strikes, has one outcome, one goal in mind, and that is to steal and kill and destroy. To make you feel alone in the world, to elevate betrayal and hurt, to make you question the very goodness of God. For though we live in the world, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension, every reasoning, every imagination, every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, against the revelation of God's way, against the revelation of his character, we demolish it. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And here's what I say as the second strand of what I'm thinking this morning that has been difficult but incredibly life-giving to me. I cannot afford to entertain thoughts about myself, about my circumstances, or about others that my father doesn't think about these. I cannot afford to entertain thoughts about myself or my circumstances or others that my father doesn't think about these. When I do, I open myself up to a lie. When I do, I actually war against the purposes of God in my life, even though with my mouth I say, I love you, God. Even though I'm singing songs of worship, even though I'm touched with what he's done for me. In that moment, I'm actually warring against the things that he wants to do in my life, and I'm participating with the one who has come to steal and kill and destroy. So here in this scripture, our Father gives us a picture, and it's a picture of strongholds being pulled down. Uh, it's a picture of, of demolishing. And that's a violent term, folks. It's just, it's inherently a violent term. Demolishing is not cleaning it up a little bit. This is not a casual thing. Oh, I shouldn't think things like that. Oh, I shouldn't allow my mind to go there. Oh, Oh, it's not casual at all. It's a violent term, tearing down this stronghold, this place where the enemy of my soul is working violence. Even if I can't see it, I will see it someday. Because having made the choice to allow these thoughts to be present in my spirit and mind, 
to strengthen these thoughts, to meditate on these thoughts, to reflect on these thoughts. The way my father has kind of constructed this deal is that I'm free to make that choice, and you're free to make that choice. But you and I are not free to define the consequences of that choice. As I said, I've learned some of this stuff, not through the mountaintop experience of like, wow, look how amazing I am. I've learned this through the brokenness and humiliation of looking at the things that I have given my life to that I desperately wanted to look different than they actually were of having no answers for the extent of the pain and the confusion and the hurt that others were carrying. And when I was honest with myself, the common denominator of it all was the thread called Bruce. Something in my manner, something in me was creating enormous confusion and pain. And I looked in the mirror and I said, Holy cow, I've become the guy that I said I'd never be. And it was out of that sense of desperation that I kind of learned to rebuild the airplane in flight because that's what life does to you. It doesn't stop so you can conveniently make corrections. You got to do it in real time. So here's this picture of, of what happens when we partner even unwittingly with the enemy. And folks, the way this is described in the language that Paul is using here in 2 Corinthians 10, you know, we do well to understand that this is, this is a completely either-or deal. That when I am not acting in concert with what my Father's ways are, then I am putting my shoulder to the schemes of the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And it doesn't matter how I dress and how I look or what you think of me. This is what happens. You're either working out the way of God as modeled through Jesus, or you're working out the schemes of the evil one. And if you have eyes to see you see what the differences look like. We cannot afford to entertain thoughts about ourselves or our circumstances or others that our Father doesn't think about these. Let me move to the third strand. It's kind of an interesting and fun picture that comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. Um, when Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the potential negative influences in their lives. He warned them in verse 15. He said, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Be careful about the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And this is what he was saying to them. The yeast of the Pharisees, the influence of the Pharisees was this. They taught about a God who is at the center of all things. But behaviorally, they acted as though this God was impersonal and powerless. 
So the Pharisees, here's their M.O. I mean, they drew their goal from the very pages of Scripture. They said in their time that if we can only bring our nation to repentance, that God will lift the burden of exile from us under the thumb of Rome, and he will restore us to the former days of glory that we had when David was our king. Is that a good thing? See, like, I'm in favor of circulating right now with a pot of coffee. Like, and just kind of, here's a cup, and here's a cup, and here's a cup. Because like I've said to you before, I need a little bit of sense that you're with me in this. (laughs) Are you? The first strand? Right? Do I love you, Father? Yes. I love the people with whom you've given me the grace of connection. The second strand, I cannot afford to entertain thoughts about myself or my circumstances or others that you don't think about these, Father. Because when I do, I partner with the one who's come to steal and kill and destroy. The Pharisees taught that God was at the center of all things, but that he was impersonal, powerless, handcuffed. And I ask you again, is the goal a worthy goal? To bring the nation to repentance, is the goal a worthy goal? I'm asking the question. It's not a trick question. Is the goal a worthy goal to bring the nation to repentance? All right. It's a worthy goal. Sometimes we derive a worthy goal even from the pages of scriptures, but the way we walk it out and we work it out is some version of if it's to be, it's up to me. And this is what these guys did. This is why in the early part of Acts, you see Saul, who became Paul, the one who actually wrote these words in 2 Corinthians 10 that I read this morning, who's standing on a street corner with all kinds of robes draped over his clothes as his peers are stoning Stephen with his full approval. Why? Because in his mind, that sort of violence was justified in bringing the nation to repentance, then when he eradicated the influences of man like Stephen and others like him, that it increased the likelihood that these people would get that they meant business. Wow. Have you ever known a religious person that does something like that? Beware. Of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod, Jesus says. The leaven of Herod is this, like he's a two-faced guy. You know, he, when he's with Rome, he just looks at them with all sincerity and says, I'm here to do your bidding, man. I'm your man. You want to keep the peace? I'll keep peace. You want to make a point? I'll help you make the point. We're better together. Let's do this. And then when he comes to the Pharisees and the, the, the high court and the priests, he looks at them with the same sincerity and says, I'm for you guys. I, I am for you guys. And you just tell me 
what it is you want me to deliver, and I'll deliver it to you. He gets the way of the world. He's a political genius. He gets that the way to get things done is get more and more people on your side believing in you because might makes right. The leaven of Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. The disciples, let me pick it up in Mark chapter 8, verses 14 and following. Mark says the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another. Have you ever been confused by something Jesus said? I feel your pain. And they concluded this, this utterly lame response. Well, he must have said that because we don't have any bread. Brilliant, guys. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Hey, guys, do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousands? Guys, how many basketfuls of bread did you pick up? Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Folks, the disciples are in a boat with no more than one loaf of bread. And it's not a big loaf, it's a personal-sized loaf of bread that was baked in a small little clay oven by somebody. It's enough for one person, maybe. There's 13 of them in the boat. Use your imagination here. When the lights come on, that they're out in the middle of nowhere in a boat with no food, oh, and just to make it more interesting, if we were to take the time to read the verses just prior to this, it was one of the events that Jesus was talking about. It was the feeding of the 4,000. And folks, how many baskets of bread did the disciples gather up when everybody had eaten their fill? Seven. So you hear how this thing goes. Guys are starting to become aware that there's no food in the boat. What do human beings do when we start to see a problem? The first thing we do is we affix blame, right? Because we all know, don't we? Once you clearly affix blame, problem solved. <laughs> or not. They don't have enough food for lunch. And they go into this conversation that gets more and more animated. I think, it's not recorded in Mark, but I, you just, I just see this happening. This is why Jesus interrupted it and said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herod. Jesus doesn't tend to say these random things that have nothing to do with anything. You just see, it's like one of these guys is huddling down over his piece of bread, and somebody across the boat says, 
why didn't you get enough for all of us? And he gets defensive, and he says, I'm not your mother. You saw the bread. I went and got some. You could have done the same. Well, actually, no, I couldn't because, you see, I was down here prepping the boat. I was getting the boat ready. If we didn't have a boat, we wouldn't be going across the water. Thank me for that. And somebody across the boat says, yeah, yeah, he was keeping the boat. Why didn't you get bread for us? And he looks at him and he goes like, are your legs broken? 50 meters from the shore was where the baskets were. You saw me walk back to get what I wanted. You could have done the same if you weren't so lazy. And it goes and it goes and it goes. It's kind of exterior to me. I have no idea what they're talking about because I never do this kind of thing, right? This is where Jesus says, guys, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and of the yeast of Herod. And this is where the guys go. Ah, he must be saying that because we don't have any bread. Listen. It's important to grasp this. This is the third strand that's been so life-giving to me. Jesus says, hear him, why do you talk about having no bread? The word that he uses is the very same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 10. Why do you reason? Why do you have this thought pattern that you have no bread? And then he reminded them that they were with him. They were with him when he provided food for thousands of people twice. Listen, why does your thought pattern in times of struggle, in times of hurt, in times of pain, why does your thought pattern begin with what you don't have. Jesus is asking the question, why is your reasoning, your reasoning, at war with my world? You are thinking about, you are reasoning, you are dwelling on, you are constantly thinking about a reality, a reality that violates how I live, how I think, and having done that, you are now reaping the consequences of that, right? We are free to make the choice, I'll think my way, or I'll do battle against these thoughts that war against the ways of God. And having made my choice, then I'm not free to choose the consequences. How many of you have ever been in need or become aware of a need for God to act. How many of you have seen God's provision in your life? Financial provision, comfort provision, forgiveness provision, direction provision. And you are excited about what he showed you. And then a year later, you came around to circumstances that was every bit as difficult, and you reacted with the same anxiety 
and fear and frustration. About 30 years ago, I was, uh, I was migrating a career shift. My wife and I had moved down to San Antonio, Texas, and we had become a part of the first evangelical free church we'd ever been a part of. I didn't even know that, that this crazy group of people like you existed, right? It was a church plant in northeast San Antonio. There were about 30 families, and they had just called their first pastor about a year. And we were so enthralled with this little group of people. We drove all the way from northwest San Antonio around the Beltline to northeast San Antonio just to go to church there. And these people were like, what's wrong with you? You must have passed 150 churches to get to where we are. Why are you coming way over here? And we're just going like, there's something here, man. We just It wasn't a pastor. George is a great guy, but he's from Houston, Texas. And I used to sit there and listen to his talks on Sunday morning. And I think, did you just put a handful of marbles in your mouth before you tried to talk? I mean, it was just, you almost needed an interpreter to hear this. But he's a great-hearted man. And it was in the context of this church when Heather and I made the, the shift, the turn, to leave the business world and see what God had for us in vocational Christian ministry. And it wasn't my own idea. A group of these leaders had approached me on Saturday morning, and they, and they wanted to talk with me. And I told Heather as I was going to meet with them, I think I've ticked somebody off. Right? And, and it wasn't that. They just, they just held a mirror up to me and they said, look, we see some gifts in you that we're not sure we see in yourself. Have you ever given consideration to going into full-time ministry? And I said, no. The path that I'm on is fine. I'm going to be here for two years. I'm going to go to San Francisco and work in the marketing department for two years and then I'm going to get a district of my own. This is great. I'm happy to be a lay person. And then God would not let it be. And we ended up making the decision to shift the direction of our lives. And one Sunday afternoon, this little group of 30 people that would, I mean, if everybody was present, there wouldn't be as many people who are in this section right here. And you're a lot better looking than a lot of them were, right? They're Texans. There, I just upset the whole state of Texas. <laughs> they threw a party, and they invited us to be there, and they presented us with an envelope and said, we, we want to be a part of what you're doing, what God is doing in you. And they made a commitment to us, this little group of people, to put 1500 bucks a month into our pocket for the years that we were in Dallas going to school. I had never had anything like that happen in my life, man. And it was like, what? I was, I was awkward. I was kind of embarrassed. I was, I was humbled. A little bit later in the week, a man and his wife, Carl, was a retired military police captain. And he, all the sternness that you'd expect with that. And he spoke with a German accent. I mean, you tell Carl a joke, he never cracked a smile. It's just not his way. And he grilled me over dinner. I had Heather, who was pregnant with our second, and our little boy, Joel, who was a year old. Uh, and he was, he was hitting me. Like, how are you going to provide for your family? And I said, Carl, just, I mean, if God is in this, he's in it. And, the, and it might take 10 years to get through this seminary curriculum. I don't care. I'm not going anywhere. 
And after dinner, they cleared the table and they served us dessert. And Carl said, well, actually, his wife, Joy, said with a twinkle in her eye, because Carl couldn't twinkle. <laughs> they said, here's what we would like to do. Every tuition bill you get, every book bill you have, every fee you receive from Dallas Seminary, just put it in an envelope and mail it to us. We want to take care of that. I just started to cry. I, I, I was, it was just, an, they had not known us for even six months. Went out to the car, we're loading Joel, my little one-year-old, into the car seat, and, and I'm just like, I'm still just, but I'll tell you what, I was, I was like a foot off the ground. And at that moment in my life, there was nothing that I would have not have done if my father had just said, do it. I mean, my faith was so amped up, I knew for the rest of my life I'd never doubt his goodness. Fast forward ahead five years. We had driven across country with our 1967 Oldsmobile Delta 88, and three kids and a dog pulling a trailer and following a moving pod across the country to Eugene, Oregon, where we believed God had called us to partner with the Pacific Northwest District of the Evangelical Free Church of America to plant a church in Eugene, Oregon. And I was jacked. I knew this was the thing. And we got into Eugene, and in those days, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was like a section in the Register Guard newspaper about this long with houses to rent. The market was so tight. And I began to discover the landlords were not inclined to rent to a young man with three little kids under the age of seven and a dog if there were better clients standing in line to consider. For two months, we lived with my brother and his family up in Salem, day after day after day, making the trip down to Eugene, trying to find something. We finally found it, just a beautiful home on the south side of Eugene. It was like just perfect for our family. And the first thing we did was just thank God for his provision. Thank you, Father. A month later, my phone rang, and I get a call from a guy who's now the acting leader superintendent of the Pacific Northwest District. How are you doing, Bruce? Fine. We've got a house to live in now. We're making some connections with the neighborhood, getting a feel for this city. We're excited to be here. Good, good, good. Well, let me just cut to the chase. You heard of that expression of robbing Peter to pay Paul? And all of a sudden, I get this kind of like tightness in my gut. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I, I don't know how these things happen, but the money that we had set aside to fund your church plant is, it's gone. And I said to so-and-so, you know, I, look, what you're saying is after this first year that we're going to have to figure some things out, maybe come to the table and work out another deal. And he said, no, what I'm saying to you is last month you received your last check from the district. And man, I went into a rage. I was so angry. I felt so betrayed. It was not just me, it was my young family. Man, I was ready to kill somebody. If, if an attorney had knocked on my door, 
and said, hey, here's a card. I'm just trying to establish myself in this community. If you know anybody who wants to talk with me, send them my direction. I would have said, come on in. Man, I was ready to do anything to anybody. You see, that's Jesus' point, isn't it? Why do you reason? Why don't you change the way you think? It's because of this. We tend to see God's provision in our lives as meeting a certain need at a certain point in time. We tend to believe that God interrupts the circumstances of our lives with his provision or his response when we ask. But that's not the point. When Father moves in response to your need, it's not for temporary provision. It's for revelation of his character and who he is as Father. An expression of I will be with you. An expression of his absolute commitment to fulfill his way in you and with you a very specific revelation that when I have called you to something, I will also resource you. But we look at God's provision just like those guys in the boat did. The feeding of the 5,000, that was way cool. Those people went away full. Don't you have eyes to see, Jesus said? We have ears to hear? This was not about a temporary, momentary provision. You are not on your own here. That was revelation. The third strand that I want to offer you then this morning is this. Whenever I have received or seen a miracle of response or provision in my life, hear me, I'm choosing these words carefully. I have lost the right to begin my thoughts and my sentences with what I don't have. Whenever I have experienced God's response or provision in my life, it's revelation. Not temporary suspension of circumstances. It's revelation. And because of what he shows me, I no longer have the right to begin the conversation with what I don't have. These are hard things that I'm sharing with you this morning. They weren't learned in a seminary classroom. They were learned in the experience of life that I had to wrestle with how do I resolve these circumstances of frustration and fear and disappointment, much of which I am putting on myself I'm responsible for, how do I get away from this? And it made me have to reframe almost my entire theology. So this is the issue. It's a reasoning that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Listen, for those of you who are in a place in life where you've heard echoes of the places I've been in life and you're weary 
You're weary of sleeplessness and frustration and fear and confusion. And you're weary of weariness. I have a couple of things that I'd point you toward. They're not magic pills, but it's a great starting point. If you want to resolve this, the first thing that you could do is become a student of yourself. Mm, Not the self that you want others to see. Become a student of who you are when you're at your worst. When the circumstances are piling up around you. When the enormous confusion that you're carrying feels like it's going to make your head explode. Become a student of yourself in those moments. Some of us throw a fit. We're a lot more polished than we were when we were two when we threw food against the wall. But nonetheless, we throw a fit, and those around us know that we're throwing a fit. And the bigger our fit, the more reluctant people are to call us on it. Because they've counted the cost. And they know what it will cost to hold a mirror up to us. Some of us become intimidating. We're like that little puffer fish that swims happily in the reefs until it encounters a predator and then it blows itself up to three times its size with big spikes that come out of all of it, right? That's who we are. When we feel up against it, we use our intimidation. That's what we've learned in life. We become forceful. We become large. We become loud. We become intimidating. For some of us, we're wordsmiths, and we argue, 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 and we argue until people just become exasperated. And we don't know that we might have won the argument in our mind, but we've lost the chance to be in relationship with this individual. Some of us in the church were particularly good at this one. We've mastered being passive-aggressive. We smile at each other in passing. How are you? Fine, it's good to see you. But then we kick under the table. My in-laws, my daughter-in-laws, mom and dad, and Heather and I, we've had this kind of ongoing joke, and for the life of me, I can't remember how it started. But there's this little cartoon on a 3 by 5 or 4 by 6 card, and then there's this word in German called Schadenfreude. I'd never even heard of the word until they brought it to my attention. Schadenfreude. It's a German word. There's no English equivalent, one word equivalent, but what it means is that sense of wishing ill on another. I hope that you find yourself in circumstances where you feel even worse than I'm feeling right now. I hope, I hope that you experience loss. It would serve you right. But it's Sunday morning, so instead I'm going to smile. Become a student of yourself, not on those times when you're at your best, but when you're at your worst. 
Don't be like the person in James who looked in the mirror and saw who he or she was and then quickly looked away and forgot what they saw. When we do that, we're likely to follow it up with this sense of like, yeah, well, they were just the circumstances. It got tough there for a while. And our father says, look, man, circumstances don't make you who you are. Circumstances reveal what's in you. Don't look away. Don't look away. And the second thing, find repentance if you are able. And I'm not saying that to taunt you or to ridicule you or to poke you. I mean that with all my heart. We can't see things until we're able to see things. But here's what we do sometimes. We repent of the behaviors. Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I was, I was a little impatient with you because I was in a hurry to get here. And, you know, doggone it, sometimes you make us late. And I was out in the car and I was waiting and I, I shouldn't have honked the horn. Realized that. And, and I shouldn't have given you the silent treatment all the way over to the meeting, but you, I just sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm impatient. I need to work on that. Or, you know, I, I've known how destructive my anger can be, and I've learned that if I just count to 10, I can get it under control a little bit. And I didn't count to 10, and I so regret that thing that I said to that person. I'm sorry that I said that. Or we're in a conversation with somebody and we're going deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness of murdering somebody's reputation. And the person has the courage to say to us, eh, look, I'm, thank you for sharing these things with me, but I'm feeling a little bit awkward right now. I don't think we should be talking like this. right?" And you feel that flush in your cheeks. And you look down at your feet and you say, oh, you're right. I need to quit gossiping. Right? We're fond of repenting of the behaviors, but the behaviors are just the tip of the iceberg, folks. It's the thought patterns that are the rest of the iceberg. And until you address the thought patterns, you're just going to continue to be a pawn in the hand of the evil one whose entire purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. How do we get to the thought patterns? Thank you for asking. <laughs> One question, easy to ask, more costly than you can know at this moment to answer. The question is, why? Why am I impatient? Well, it may be because I have such an enormous sense of my own self-importance that in my imagination, everybody else bows to my timeline. Forget the fact that I left the house 10 minutes late to get to the meeting. I was justified in flashing my high beams and honking at people to get out of my way, coming down the road. Why do I get so angry? Well, it's a little help here. James 4 says it's because you're a control freak. You want something that you can't have? but you know you can get it. And so you employ all kinds of personal forcefulness to get an outcome, just like the Pharisees did. 
James says, you'll even kill and covet to get your outcome. Gee, that sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 10. The enemy steals and kills and destroys. Why do I gossip? Why do I judge? On and on and on. See, these behaviors are just the tip of the iceberg. Our Father's invitation is to understand the thought patterns that you have blindly allowed to remain in your conversation, in your mind, and in your spirit, and deal with things on that level. Hear me. The answer to the question why does not end with, well, because it's sinful and I shouldn't do it. That doesn't answer the question. And if your journey is a lot like mine, you're going to need to surround yourself with some people who have overcome the thing that is dogging you with a spirit of humility, and you're going to have to say to them, I don't know how to climb out of this. Will you help me? Or you may have to go to a professional who will help walk you through a better understanding of of why these things are so at home in your life, why these patterns, why these thoughts are so instinctively strong in you. And then, having identified the thought pattern, choose to die to it. Galatians 2.20 is not a statement of personal salvation in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 is what we're talking about this morning from the heart and the pen of a man named Paul who was the Pharisee who understood the yeast of the Pharisees. And he said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. I know the cupboard where all those tools are available, but I've put a lock on it and I refuse to go there because I've experienced enough of what it produces And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the one who gave his life for me, his way. Do you hear me? His way. Do I love you, Father? Yes, I do. I love the people with whom you've given me the grace of relationship. Do I allow false thinking into my mind? Yes, I do, Father. And when I, when I entertain thoughts about myself or about others or about my circumstances that are different from your thoughts, I pay a terrible price. I can taste it. I don't want that anymore. When I experience your provision, Father, it's not just a temporary interruption of difficult circumstances. It is revelation of your capacity to be absolute in fulfilling your promise to be my dad in every way. So I'm going to become a student of myself so that I can identify the things that are creating such a low ceiling in my relationships, in the community of faith, and outside the community of faith. And I'm going to find the courage to ask the question, why are these things part of my life and I'm going to find the humility to ask for help if I was stranded on a desert island what I've given you this morning would cover me for way beyond the rest of my life 
The thing that Jesus says in Matthew 22 that moves it out of a favorite life verse for me is that he says, upon this peg, all, all of the law and the prophets hang. When the point of God's revelation has realized fulfillment in the lives of a person who loves the people with whom God has given the grace of relationship, he asks no more. That's the whole point. That's everything. We are not afraid. We are not afraid of the next meal. We are not afraid of what people do to us. We are not afraid of what people might say to us. That's the hope of our Father. He offers that to you. Blame and arguing doesn't multiply the loaves in the boat. Father, thank you for the severe mercy that you've shown me in times of my life. Uh, when I've wept and I've been angry and I felt betrayed and hurt and absolutely confused by why you'd allow these things to happen to me. I just thank you for those times because out of those times was forged a desperation to understand you beyond the silly Sunday school ways that I'd imagined you to be. Help me, help my brothers and sisters to wrestle with the reality we will not violate the way of love for any goal, for any outcome, to make anything right. We will not violate the way of love. In Jesus' name, amen.